As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Acts, chapter 16. This has been a, a busy week, but I hope in the busyness of the week you took some time to reflect upon uh, the freedom that we have in this country. I hope that uh, you celebrated and took a moment to just pause and remember um, those who went before us, who fought, many who died, so that we might experience uh, freedom in this country. And I was struck as I reflect on, on Remembrance Day, it always reminds us, reminds me, excuse me, of the greater freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I love, I love that we have a country where so many sacrifice so much to bring us freedom, and I love the parallels it should strike for us when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I was reminded as well that, you know, when the Second World War ended, that didn't just bring about peace and tranquility across the world. In fact, you might remember that in 1961, a construction began on what is known as the Berlin Wall. In the wake of World War II, there was still a lot of a corruption, a lot of the Soviet communist regime was still alive and well, and they built this Berlin Wall separating East and West Germany, and it was 140 kilometers of wall, 12 feet high, almost four feet wide. It was constructed from 45,000 separate sections of reinforced concrete. This barrier stood for 28 years as a literal iron curtain dividing Europe, and the intent of the Berlin Wall was to prevent migration from Eastern, Eastern Berlin into Western Berlin, and what it created essentially was a wall that formed a prison where there was incredible oppression in Eastern Germany. People essentially were enslaved in their own country, unable to leave. Families, loved ones separated for over 30, for almost 30 years. But as history records and as is so well documented and so well known, that wall would eventually be torn down. In 1989, the process began and demolition actually began on June 13th, 1990. It took two years to tear down this wall. Pictures, as you see, like the one behind me, of people breaking through this massive concrete barrier are a reminder that the greatest barriers can come crashing down. You know, when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, there are powers, there are barriers, there are walls that stand against the advancement of the gospel. There are forces at work that would attempt to prevent the flow of migration of human beings out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, as we read scripture and as we know and as we believe so deeply, these walls, no matter how strong, no matter how wide, no matter how powerful they may seem, they were meant by the grace of God to come crashing down. 
We are called, as a church, we are called as Christians to be breaking through the barriers, and that's what we have seen in the book of Acts as the gospel continues to advance. Barriers are smashed to pieces. They are no match for the power of the gospel, and I love, as we look at the ministry journeys of the apostle Paul, we can reflect on his words in Romans chapter one, verse 16, as he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for all those who believe, for the Jew first and then to the Greek. The barriers that stand in our way are nothing in comparison to the mighty power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, what we are being taught in one sense is that we ought to have incredible confidence in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that falling out of the pages. And if you walk away from here with one thing, have this drilled into your heart and mind. I can have confidence in the power of the gospel. And breaking through these barriers requires this confidence that is not just, listen, not just declared with our lips, but is demonstrated with our lives. And Paul begins to demonstrate his confidence in the gospel and the pages and the passage before us. And let's read the first section together, beginning at verse 16. He says this, as we were going to the place of prayer, We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and it came out of her that very hour. Just note this, because I have confidence in the power of the gospel, I don't back down. I don't back down no matter what may be standing in the way, no matter how great the barrier, no matter how tall the wall, I don't back down. Here Paul, Silas, and his missionary team, they're on their way back to the place of prayer. You'll remember that Paul is in this city called Philippi. It's his second missionary journey and he is looking to see the gospel continue to advance to unreached people groups. And we saw last week that Paul began in Philippi by going to this place of prayer out by a river where a group of women were meeting. He shared the the gospel with these women and one woman at least named Lydia, her heart was opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. She heard, she understood, and she believed the gospel. Paul and Silas, I I believe, are anticipating God to continue this great work of saving sinners, and so they go back to this place of prayer to engage with more people who are God-fearers, who want to know the truth about who God really is. And as they're on their way, you can imagine the scene, the, the, the chaotic city of Philippi, perhaps people a bit of a hustle and bustle, people going about their daily business. They're stopped almost dead in their tracks by a young slave girl who is possessed by a demon, a spirit of divination, the text tells us. They're met, here's what you need to see, they're met by satanic opposition that is intended to prevent, to halt the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're met first with a spiritual barrier. And the first thing we can learn from them is this, while while I may say I don't back down, here's what I need to be committed to, I need to stay the course. 
You see, they're met by this slave girl who stood in their way, and there's two things that are mentioned about her. One is that she has a spirit of divination. In other words, Luke is letting us know that she is somehow connected to the pagan religions in the city of Philippi. The greater religions, the more prominent religions, were often um, dabbling in the occult. They believed in the, the spiritual realm. And there's a deep connection here with this girl and the the cults of the day. The second thing is that we see about her is that she's being exploited for gain. She is a slave girl and she's owned by human owners who are using and abusing her. Uh, she has the spirit of divination. She has the ability by these spirits to tell the future, so they're using her. This is, in one sense, the ultimate depiction of humanity. There is a, a sense in which all of humanity is enslaved by the worldview of Satan. They're trapped and, and they're barred in, so to speak, by Satan, and maybe not possessed, obviously, by a spirit like this girl was, but what a, what a picture to have in our minds. She is both abused and being used by Satan and abused and being used by the world. And I'm reminded as I read this, listen, that the spiritual world is absolutely real. Our primary battleground is not physical. The Bible tells us this so clearly. Our primary battleground is spiritual. Satan is actually called in Scripture the prince of the power of the air. He is called, listen, the ruler of this world. We are told by Paul himself that Satan actually blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they may not see the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I just think this is so important for you and I to embrace because we need to understand as we venture out and we want to see the gospel moving forward, listen, we do not move out into neutral territory. This is, I believe, where so many of us are knocked off course. You see, we think we're just walking out into neutral ground. We think that there's, you know, it's kind of a neutral world and it's neither this or neither that. But what we need to see, biblically speaking, is that we are walking into enemy territory. Every time we walk out into this world with the good news of Jesus Christ, we are marching into Satan's territory. And he ain't happy about it. He will do everything in his power to prevent the church of Jesus Christ from moving forward uh, to the best of his limited abilities. He wants to halt the gospel of Jesus Christ. We would do well to remember that we are marching into a spiritual battleground. In fact, Paul, in the great chapter on spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter six, listen to what he says in verse 12. He says this. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Paul is encountering this in a very visible way, in ways that are not usually as visible for us to see and experience. But nonetheless, you and I equally walk into a spiritual war. Paul and Silas maybe were tempted to say, you know what, Satan's got this territory covered. Satan's got a lot of power and control in this area. You know what, maybe, maybe we should kind of deviate from the course. Maybe, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe this will be require of us too much effort, too much time. I mean, this is, this is not gonna work out perhaps, and maybe we just gotta find a better route, but what we need to see here is this. Paul refuses to back down, and he stays the course. Church, let me encourage you as we walk out into enemy territory, into hostile territory, 
We need not back down. We have confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to stay the course. And secondly, notice this. Don't back down. Stand your ground. It's, it's pivotal that we understand that we need to stay the course. Don't deviate from the mission of God and the plan of God for us and for the church. Keep pressing forward, but we need to see that sometimes it's going to require us to actually entrench ourselves, to plant our feet more firmly than they were planted before. And we see this kind of unfolding in such a strange way. You see, this woman, uh, this young girl, excuse me, she follows Paul and his missionary team, and she's crying out. This is so strange, isn't it? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, at this point, perhaps you're asking the question that I'm asking, and just like, what in the world is happening here? I mean, I thought this was a demonic spirit. I thought he you know, served with Satan. I thought he was rebelling against God. What in the world is an evil spirit doing, promoting not only the messengers of God, but promoting the message of the gospel? Well, I think we can all agree on one thing. We believe with all of our hearts that Satan in no way wants to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? You believe that? He in no way has in his plan for the gospel to succeed. He in no way wants the gospel to move forward in any capacity. And so what we need to understand here is this, that this is not Satan affirming the message and the messengers. This is a subtle tactic of Satan to distort the message and the messengers and to devalue the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can be sure of that. And I'm gonna show you what's actually taking place. She's crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God. This phrase, the Most High God, was a, a common designation in religious circles in the ancient world. It was used in pagan literature to speak of Zeus. You know, Zeus is the Most High God. And so when people hear in the ancient con context, these men are servants of the Most High God, instantly, you know who their mind runs to? Zeus. Oh, these men are coming on behalf of Zeus, and, and maybe they have something valuable to say. Now, they speak of salvation here, and, and here it sounds like the, this demon is promoting the salvation that they are proclaiming. But here's what I want you to see. You see, salvation was also a common pursuit in the Greco-Roman world. Salvation in the physical sense, you know, from trials of life and from circumstances in life. People just like today, they want salvation. They want to be relieved of these things. And even in a spiritual sense, people in the ancient world were, were highly spiritual. They were highly religious communities. They always wanted some sort of physical and spiritual salvation for themselves. And here's what we need to understand about the ancient context. In many ways, it parallels our context today. But salvation, or excuse me, religion and salvation even, were, were kind of like a spiritual buffet, okay? In, in other words, you know, they, they'd be told about all these different gods and all these different ways of salvation. And much like today, you know, people go around with this kind of a pluralistic approach, a syncretistic approach where they say, oh, you know what, I mean, I'll take some of this. Yeah, that sounds good. And you know what, over here, that religion and that belief, okay, I'll take some of that too. And you know, they kind of build up this religious plate and they stuff it in their mouth. And the hope is that they've found in all of these other religious systems a part that can apply to them in some way and they put them all together and they think what they've found is the true God and the true way of salvation. We, we kind of see the 
the implications of this, even fleshed out in our day and age, I mean, if you walked up to the average person, and I still think most people would tell you that they believe in God, but if you walked up to somebody and said, do you believe in God? More often than not, you're going to get the answer, yeah, I believe in God. Well, do you think you need to be saved? No, yeah, sure, I think I need to be saved. But if you start kind of digging below that, if you kind of get below the surface, what you find out is that their, listen, their definition of God and their definition of salvation is very different than the biblical definition. But they think they're saved. They think they know God. And so you can see the subtle tactics of Satan. He is distorting, and here's the the phrase that I, I want to help you understand. I think that Satan will often use intentional ambiguity. It's so much more deadly than outright denial, isn't it? If you can convince people they're saved when they're really not, oh man, have you got yourself further down the road. And this is why so many of the cults flourish today. Well, I want you to see that they're intentionally skewing, they're overgeneralizing, and, and people then would have no ability to differentiate this true message from the messages that are surrounding them. It is an intentional obstacle standing in the way. And I, this is so fascinating here. It says this, and then she kept doing this for many days. Did you catch that? I mean, can you, can you imagine how relentless this woman, this young girl is? Everywhere they go, she is screaming out, she's crying out. Some of you are like, hey, that's awesome. It's like a human bullhorn. Like, there's no such thing as bad advertising. Well, Paul doesn't think so. In fact, I love what he does here. Paul sees the relentless nature of Satan, and what he does is goes right at it. In verse 18, it says, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. There's his authority. There's his confidence right there. It is Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Paul exercises his apostolic authority that has been given to him by Jesus Christ. He commands this evil spirit to flee. Many days needs to remind us, listen, that Satan is relentless in his attacks against the church and against the people of God. Satan is not giving up easy. And the harder you press forward, the more you fight, the more likely you are to encounter resistance from him. Paul had finally had enough. I love that phrase there. And Paul greatly annoyed, you think? But don't get the wrong idea. Listen, it's not, this is not like Paul is saying he had some kind of a sinful irritation and this girl's just driving me crazy. The word actually has the sense of being deeply disturbed or deeply troubled. In other words, Paul is looking at this poor girl who is enslaved by a demonic spirit and his heart is breaking for her. She is trapped. She herself has been confused and brought under the reign of Satan. And he's looking at how the gospel is supposed to be advancing and he's saying, look, this is, this is a disturbance and a distortion and many people are being led astray by this evil, wicked system and his heart is so deeply disturbed that he can take it no longer and he steps up and he declares to this demon, get out of here in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul's command for this demon to come out, listen, is a statement that God is making through Paul. Here it is, listen. God is reclaiming his territory and his possession from his great enemy, Satan. 
In other words, it's as if Satan's like, this is my territory, and here comes Paul and the power of Jesus Christ, and God is saying, this ain't your territory anymore. You are not greater than God. You are not stronger. You have no victory. In fact, the cross demonstrates that the victory has been won in and through Jesus Christ, and you are clinging to what is not rightfully yours, and we have come in the name of Jesus Christ to reclaim and to take back what is rightfully the ruler of the universes. Listen, that's the confidence we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We march out into a spiritual battle, but we march out, listen, on the winning team. We don't fight for victory, we fight from a place of victory. Jesus Christ has already conquered, and now we're taking back the spoils of the victory of our king, one soul at a time. For too many days, listen church, for too many days, Satan has been deceiving the multitudes. For too many days, for too many days, for too many years, for too many centuries, for too many millennia, Satan has had almost free reign of this world, but because of Jesus Christ, listen, the gospel is moving forward and taking back what is rightfully his. It is imperative that we not retreat in the midst of the battle, but that we stand our ground. We stand firm. I love what Paul says in Ephesians chapter six in that great spiritual warfare section. He says, therefore stand firm in the strength of his might. But listen, church, don't think it's not gonna cost you something. Don't back down, stay the course, stand your ground. Lastly, suffer the consequences. Verse 19 tells us, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, see what's motivating them here? It's money. We've just lost our greatest source of income. They're furious, listen to what they do. They seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They pivot from the real issue and they make this something that seems so much bigger than what it really is. They're talking about the national interests now and how this could cause a riot and disrupt everything in this Roman colony. That gets the attention of the leaders. The crowd, verse 22, joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their their garments off them and they gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They are dragged off. They are beaten with rods. They are publicly humiliated. They are thrown into the deepest, darkest part of the most horrendous prison you can imagine. Their feet are placed in stocks. They're beaten, bloody, battered in so much pain you can't even fathom. The stocks are intended to keep them in a position of pain. Can I just ask you a question? What is it worth to you to rescue people from the clutches of Satan and the reality of an eternity in hell? What is it worth to you?
They suffer the consequences of following Jesus. And I just, I think we need to hear this. We need to be reminded of this. Listen, we, we have it so easy. And praise God that we're, we're, listen, we're living in a time where there's relative peace for Christians. I'm, I'm not despairing about that. I'm, I'm not devaluing that. But listen, I think the consequences of that can often be, for us as followers of Christ, a great sense of apathy and complacency. There's a cost to following Jesus Christ. We need to be willing to give our very lives for the cause of Jesus Christ. There are some things worth dying for. And I look at this though, and you want to know what I see? I, I see this in, in Paul. You know that I see? I see the confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what I see, and I, I want to take this from him, and I, wanna, I, I want you to take this too. Listen, though the whole world may stand against us, we know that our God stands with us and for us. Because I have confidence in the power of the gospel, I don't back down. Secondly, I don't lose hope. <laughs> this is so awesome. Honestly, this is one of the most amazing passages in Scripture. I mean, look, here they are in immense pain. They can't sleep. They're in so much pain. They're in the most horrendous of circumstances. We can't even get our mind around this in our culture and in our time. This is unbelievable. It is horrific. It appears to be an absolutely hopeless situation. Humanly speaking, it is insurmountable. Paul and Silas, in the midst of these horrific circumstances, model for us what it looks like listen, to persevere in hope. For most of us, this is an incredible battle. Facing far less circumstances, you and I will often crumble, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll crumble under the weight of our circumstances, won't we? We're so easy to lose hope. We're so easy to throw the towel in. We're so easy to give up on God. And they teach us, listen, how to fight from a place of hope and how to fight for an even greater hope. And I was reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I hope these words should be so authentic and real flowing from Paul now that we see his life. Listen to what he says. But, as, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's like we're weak. We're frail. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is nothing of us. This is all of God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. God, you break us down. You bring the trials. You bring the circumstances so that you can produce within our weak, frail bodies the person of Jesus Christ. I love that, and it's so real, isn't it, when you look at what he suffered? He knew what it was to be in the most challenging of circumstances, so the question is this, how, when we have difficult circumstances, can we express the same kind of hope as Paul and Silas? Here it is first, fight with prayer. Look at this, about midnight, they can't sleep. About midnight, they're in so much pain, they're weeping and crying out to God, how could you let this happen to me? No, check this out, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. They're singing hymns to God. They're praying to God. I look at this, and don't, don't you, part of, part of me says, 
how in the world are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why aren't you freaking out, Paul? Why aren't you scrambling? Why aren't you calling a lawyer? Something. Here's why. Listen, if you're taking notes, write this down. Prayer reminds me that God is great. Prayer reminds me that God is great. You know, you know the book of Hebrews uses the, the language that when we pray, we are entering into the throne room of God. Think about this for a second. We've been given access to the throne room of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has paved the way so that we can walk into the presence, the throne room of God. Now you need to hear what this is intending to symbolize for us. To to walk into the throne room of God through prayer is to walk before and stand before and petition the king of the universe. The throne room is the throne room of the universe. It is displaying for us that there is a God that we serve who is sovereign over all creation. He rules and reigns. He is exalted above every king and every nation. And when we walk into the throne room of God, we have been given the ear of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Isn't that awesome? We don't just march, though, to a king on a throne. We march to a father who loves his children. I love that the scriptures tell us to be praying, to be casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. Isn't that so comforting that we walk to the one who's in control, but we walk to the one who cares so deeply for us? And I have no doubt that Paul and Silas and they're calling out to God, and they're asking God, God, and I believe this, it's not wrong to pray that God changes your circumstances. God, get us out of here. God, change our circumstances, but I really believe with all my heart, listen, this is the piece we so often miss, that their request was less about God changing their circumstances, and more God changed me in the midst of my circumstances. Listen, God is bringing trials into our lives for a reason. He is testing our faith. He is building our faith. He is growing our faith. In the midst of your trial, are you saying, God, don't just change my circumstance, God, change me. You know, running from prayer says that my hope is not in God, it's in me. I encounter this all the time with people going through trials, and I've done this myself too. You know, in the midst of hardships, we don't run to prayer, we don't go to God. And listen, if you're running away, if you're turning from God, you're always running to something else. Prayer is saying, my hope is not in me, but in my great God. And I love the picture that we have. Paul in Ephesians chapter six, he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. You know, in this spiritual battle, living the Christian life, he paints this amazing picture of what it looks like to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the pieces of the armor. That's what they are, by the way. We're putting on Jesus Christ. We're putting on, listen, our confidence in the gospel is displayed as we put on the helmet of salvation, as we put on the breastplate of righteousness, as we pick up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and put on the shoes that are fitted with the gospel of the readiness of peace. Listen to what you need to hear Paul, at the end of putting on the gospel armor, says this. You want to know how you keep it all tied on. You want to know how to make sure it doesn't fall off. He says this, as you're putting it on all the way through, and at the end, all the time, praying at all times in the spirit, he says. In other words, he says this, look, you can try and put the armor on, but if you aren't praying, if you aren't depending on the Lord, if you aren't calling out to him, you're really just putting on the armor like a little kid, right? Kind of helmet bobbling, shoulder, or excuse me, uh, uh, shield too heavy, unable to wield the sword, but listen, through prayer, 
we access the strength and might of God. It ties the armor on so tightly. Don't lose hope, fight with prayer. Secondly, fight with praise. This is, this is so amazing. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I mean, just think about you in the midst of your difficult circumstances for a minute. Paul and Silas, beaten, bloodied, feet in stocks, horrendous conditions. Hey, Paul, what, what do you do when life's falling apart? Oh, I sing. Write this down. Listen, praise reminds me that God is good. Prayer, prayer reminds me that God is great. Praise reminds me that God is good. You know, that's why we sing so much. That's, that's why we sing what we sing. You know, all the lyrics of the songs that we sing, the content of the songs, listen, they remind us. As we sing those words, we are reciting not only to God, but to our own hearts. Listen, that God is a God who can be trusted. Look at his character. Look at the saving works of our God. It's, it's a way of expressing trust and hope in the God who works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. Did you know Paul wrote that? I think of David, you know, the, the, the psalmist, as he pens so many of those beautiful psalms, which are songs of praise, by the way, so many of them written in unbelievably hard and painful circumstances, in struggles with sin and difficulties in life, and he pens these amazing songs, and, and they begin, and so many times, listen, they begin by describing the challenges and the pain and the sorrow, and even saying, like, God, where are you? But they end, listen, always, moving the eyes off of the circumstances and on to the God who is king of all circumstances. I just want to encourage you, as you go through the trials of life, one of the greatest things you can do is sing songs of praise to God. Be reminded of why you have a hope be reminded that your circumstances aren't the things that ought to control you, but the God who is above them all is. My hope is not in my circumstances, but in my good God. Do not lose hope. Fight with prayer, fight with praise, and then check this out. Fight with proclamation. This is an amazing, amazing story. Verse 26 says, and suddenly... Actually, back up, last half of verse 25. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. That was probably just a coincidence. It's a miracle. Proclamation reminds me, listen, that God is gracious. Don't miss the very important statement here at the end of verse 25, and all the prisoners were listening to them. You can imagine the scene. Here's this dungy, dirty prison. It's midnight, and there are these two guys who have been beaten up. They're swollen and bleeding, and they're praying out loud. You gotta bless what's happening. And they're singing praises to God out loud, and all of these other convicted criminals are listening in. Don't miss the very important point that the Word of God is trying to make for us. Listen, how you respond in the midst of your trials matters greatly. 
How, how you respond in the midst of your trials is not insignificant. Here's why. Listen, because people are always watching you. And believe me, you claim the name of Christ, you are inviting people to watch your life, aren't you? I hope you realize that. In fact, you should want people to watch your life because your life is to be a living testimony of what's happened in your heart, of the hope that you have. People are always watching and they're always looking to see, what are they gonna do in the midst of this trial? How are they gonna respond? And they're waiting, listen, they're waiting because they, they wanna see, is this for real? Is this faith they say they have in this God and belief in this gospel of Jesus, is this actually real or, or is this gonna fade? As life gets harder, as things begin to challenge them, are they gonna abandon these beliefs and show that they're really no better than anybody else? And, and here's why they're doing all of this, because they're wanting. Because everybody in this world, listen, they, they want hope and they place their hope in something or someone and they want so desperately to hope in what is gonna give them true peace and true rest and true life, and most people, if they're honest with themselves, when they look at the things they've been placing their hope in, they find that they're absolutely inadequate. And I just, I wanna remind you who these people are who are watching and listening in. Listen, these are convicted criminals. Can you just see the scene of these two men who have been unjustly put in prison, filled with hope, and contrasted with these convicted criminals, listen, many of them, listen, you have to see this, made such a mess of their lives. That's why they're there in the first place. They ruined their lives. Many of them may be sitting on death row, about ready for public execution for the crimes that they committed. How many of them do you believe are filled with some kind of hope? How many of them have realized that the things they put their hope in in this life have shown to be utterly worthless? They're sitting there wondering, is there any hope for someone like me? And maybe some of you in this place, listen, maybe you've made a complete mess of your life. Maybe you have destroyed what you, is, what you have held to be so precious in your life. And now you're looking and going, like, is there any real hope for me? Can God really work with me? Can God actually save me? And what you need to hear from the scriptures is there is a resounding yes from the loving God who we serve. It's never too late. I think of the thief on the cross. <laughs> a man who was utterly hopeless found hope in his dying moments. Listen, show people true hope by the way you go through the trials of this life. Verse 27. After all the doors are open, everyone's bonds are unfastened. Look at this. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, here's what you need to know. In, in, in ancient times, this was written in the Roman law. If a prisoner escaped under your watch, guess what happened to you? Death. So this man, here's, here's again, you gotta see the contrast. Here is these two men filled with such unbelievable hope, confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and here is this jailer all of a sudden struck by the circumstances of life, and he realizes that he himself is utterly hopeless, and sparing himself the public humiliation of a public execution, he pulls out his sword to kill himself. He is on the verge of taking his own life, moments away from drifting into eternity, 
eternity apart from God. And then Paul, look at verse 29, cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Stunning moment. In this moment, he sees the graciousness of these Christians. He sees that they care about him. Church, listen, our proclamation of the gospel is exponentially more powerful when we demonstrate genuine care for people. Don't harm yourself, we're all here, Paul says. And the jailer called for the lights, verse 29, and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is the question of the hour. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. You know, in this moment, you need to understand this as well. The jailer is meant to remind us that true hopelessness comes from misplaced confidence. Let me say that again. True hopelessness in our lives as Christians or as an unbeliever here today, listen, true hopelessness comes from misplaced confidence. The jailer began the night really probably believing that he had every confidence in his circumstances. He had a great position. He was getting paid probably decent money. He had power. Everything was going just fine, and in an instant he realized that he had a misplaced confidence. As the ground shook, everything was altered. If you've placed your hope in the things of this world and position and power and people and anything else you can think of, you need to understand this morning, you have a misplaced confidence. Your feet is in sinking sand. And I love this. This is a great picture for us. Listen, that sometimes God will shake up our lives to show us that we have placed our confidence in the wrong things. Sometimes, listen, in the love of God, he'll send an earthquake. I love that. Don't you? Don't, isn't that amazing? God would send an earthquake to save one man. What lengths God will go to out of love for his creation to show them where their hope is to ultimately be found. And in a moment, this man realized that his hope was in something shaky. It was not in the firm foundation. And then he does what everybody who realizes that ought to do. He trembles with fear, recognizing, listen, that he has every right to be fearful. Listen, if, if you don't realize that your feet are placed on the wrong footing, like you've got misplaced confidence if they're on shaky ground. If you don't realize that in this life, here's what you need to understand. That will be exposed one day, the day where you stand before King Jesus. And it will be shown that your feet have been placed in sinking sand and the call right now, listen, is to place your feet upon the rock. God wants to shake your confidence in the things of this world and the things that you have trusted in to show you that there is something greater to put your hope and trust in, the only thing that can save Jesus Christ. 
And here Paul, he goes into this man's house and he explains, don't you love that? He shares them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's not something you can do or earn. It's all about what Jesus has done. Jesus Christ died on a cross for you. You have to believe that that's what's being explained here to his household. He spoke the word of the Lord. He spoke the gospel of Jesus Christ. He showed them where they could find their confidence. Listen, Jesus is where you can find your confidence. His death, his life, his resurrection, all of that for you so that your feet can be placed upon the rock. You just need to believe. This man and his household believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so similar to Lydia. Notice this in verse 33, he took them that same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. Look at the immediate transformation, the display of gratitude, the display of true salvation. He washes them and then they wash him symbolically in the waters of baptism, he and all his family. And then he brought them into his house and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I hope that's your joy this morning. Listen, because I have confidence in the gospel, I don't lose hope. And lastly, I don't keep silent. Buckle your seatbelts. This is going to be a quick one. Verse 35 says, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. I don't exactly know what's happened here. I think we can assume that somehow they have had a change of heart, perhaps related to the fact that they think they have somehow upset the gods. A natural disaster like this would have likely indicated for them the gods were not pleased. Truth here, right? And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come now and go in peace. Look, get out of here. We don't need any more trouble. That's what he's saying. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? You know what he's saying? What they did was completely against the law. It was not just wrong, it was actually against the law. And because it was against the law, it actually threatened this Roman colony's status. People could lose their jobs over this. This was serious. I love Paul. Look at his response. No. I'm going to stay right here. Let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came, and they apologized to them. And they took them out, and they asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had sent or seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Look, there's a time to count your blessings and keep your mouth shut. Apparently, this was not one of them. There's a time where we don't keep silent, listen, but we speak up truthfully. Yes, it's been unjust treatment. Yes, they have violated the law, but here's what you need to see. And you're like, why didn't Paul bring this up when they were beating him? It's a fair question, right? Listen, Paul, Paul cared very little for his own rights. Paul cared very little for his own reputation. He's not fighting here out of this position of anger and how dare you treat me like that. He is making these statements to make it very clear. Listen, what you've done is unlawful and, it, and, and therefore it is unjust. 
Why do this then? Listen, here's why. He is thinking beyond himself. He's thinking about the future of the church in Philippi. He did not want his and Silas's treatment to become a precedent for the mistreatment of other Christians. And going quietly could have set a dangerous precedent for future treatment of the church of Jesus Christ. And so this display right here, this speaking up in this moment is, listen, it is to help the progress of the gospel through the church in Philippi. And that leads to the second thing. Don't keep silent. Speak up truthfully and set up strategically. This public apology that they make, um, this goes on the official record book. And what happens is this, it provides a credibility for this young church rather than setting them up to be persecuted, it actually sets them up to be more protected by the government. And this is not guaranteed, by the way, for any church, but Paul saw an option here. He saw channels that could be used that could help serve the church, that could set the church up strategically for greater faithfulness. And we just need to understand this. What we are doing here and now, the battles we are facing as a church, the progress we are making is not just about right now. It is about the future generations that will follow us. They are depending upon our faithfulness. They are depending upon us to fight valiantly, to give up and sacrifice greatly so that they too may see the church in this time, in this place, flourishing. And you know that's exactly what happened in the church in Philippi? In fact, Paul later would write in Philippians chapter one and say this to the church that had been flourishing and growing and making immense progress forward. He would say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, that was his heart, you see that? He wanted partners in the gospel. He knew that the church must continue to press forward. And he said this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He sets the church up to be faithful and fruitful. I pray that's your desire and mine as well as we look to the future. Let's be faithful and fruitful now and let us pray for the future generations just down the hall from us, by the way. It's been a pretty crazy week, hasn't it? You've been watching the news? <laughs> just get on social media, media for two minutes and here's what you'll see, an example of misplaced confidence. tell you this right now, I'm so thankful that my confidence is not in a country. My confidence is not in a system of government. My confidence is not in a political party or a president or a prime minister. I'm so thankful that there is no barrier that is too strong. There is no power that is too great. There is no wall that is too high. There is nothing that can prevent the most high God who is ruler over all from crashing through the greatest of all barriers. We will not back down. We will not lose hope. And we will not keep silent. Our confidence is in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ.